Gentlemen, we are dealing with the undead. Mas, Feralto. Yes, Nosferatu. The undead. The vampire. According to the legends of my people, the last Khan Dracula became one of the undead. A vampire. I am Dracula. I bid you welcome. Welcome to the now playing Universal Films Dracula Movie Retrospective Series. I have crossed oceans of time to find you. Hosted by Jacob. Oh, and I have waited an eternity for a man of your strength, your gifts, your will. Arnie. I am considered somewhat of an authority on the subject. And Stuart. We've all become God's madmen. All of us. This episode will contain detailed plot spoilers and strong language. Run to your mother. We hope you enjoy the show. Now, let's eat. Today we're discussing Dracula. Starring Frank Langella. Donald Pleasance, Kate Nelligan, with Lawrence Olivier, directed by John Badham. This is your child of the night, co-host of Now Playing, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is Jacob, who is a king of my kind. I don't know if that's podcasting, co-host, third on the rung, (laughs) third on the ladder. (laughs) Whatever my kind is, I'm the king of it. Mm -hmm. All right, here's your crown. (laughs) This is an awful crown. Yeah. What's the King of Vampires been doing in the 37 years between the last movie we covered? When last we looked, Dracula had a son that nobody liked very much and a woman pussy whipped in Louisiana. (laughs) He did have a very long career with Christopher Lee. Hammer Studios had a whole thing of Dracula movies, Peter Cushing, often the Van Helsing to Lee's vamp. Yeah, I watched like half of those and yeah, they're kind of right. Like those would be getting a lot more green arrows than these ones have so far. <laughs> really? I, I might dispute that. Do you know that there's like a psychedelic rock cult that brings Dracula back in one of them? You're telling me that's not good? I did see that one, but the one that might be kind of like Bram Stoker, but really isn't like Bram Stoker because it starts with Jonathan Harker showing up as Dracula's librarian already knowing he's a vampire and getting bitten himself and turned. They make a lot of choices. They both speed up the story and slow it down. That movie was like 90 minutes of eternity. I agree. You're talking about his first one where they retell the novel or their version of it. And that one was not impressive. Like they get a lot crazier later on. Yeah, I don't think that like it was great. And Christopher Lee, maybe he grows into the part, but he's a... He's neither sexy nor scary. He's just kind of British, you know? (laughs) Yeah, here's my controversial take from my memory of the half that I've seen. Peter Cushing upstages Christopher Lee. Like, I was Mm. much more into his Van Helsing than Lee's Dracula. I will say this. It does recognize Dracula as a figure of horror. There's no sense of, like, creepy Lothario, like blood. We're going to, like, spatter the camera sometimes with red. It's the one that comes up with the idea that the crucifix, not only does it repel vampires, but it will like sizzle on their skin and leave a scar. 
they get into the idea that makeup effects and really horrific moments need to punctuate a Dracula movie, which we just didn't get in those universal incarnations from the 30s, 40s. There was another important Dracula, I think, that happened. I've mentioned it already. In 1974, Dan Curtis, the creator of that vampire soap opera, Dark Shadows, he did a TV movie with Jack Palance, of all people, City Slickers. (laughs) As Dracula? As Dracula. It's not as bad as you would think. Not great. But here's the contribution, and I think it's a super important one. It is the first Dracula movie to establish that Dracula knew Mina in another incarnation. That the reason why he obsesses over Jonathan Harker's woman is that he believes this was the love that was stripped from him when he was a mortal back in the 15th century. I think that that is something we just assume when we watch the later ones, but was not in the novel, was not in the Universal was not in the Hammer Studios. But the reason why we get, maybe the reason why we get three vampire movies in 1979 is that Dracula has a very successful run again on Broadway. And the star of that show is Frank Langella. Langella is not a movie star, but apparently he killed it on the stage. Women swooning left and right, Tony nominated. Tony nominated? I can't believe Dracula was a popular play. Oh, it was super, super big. They had Ed Gorey, the illustrator that does all those wonderfully macabre Tim Burtonish books, do all the set designs and all of that. Yeah, he was replaced by Raul Julia. I guess that's how Raul Julia got his start as well. It was a big deal. And so in order to capture the sensation that was happening in New York, Universal was finally ready to put money behind Dracula. Because keep in mind, after so many... Hammer Studio projects, Dracula was conceived as a little passe. Like, why would anyone do a big-budget version of this? The answer is Broadway. It was such a big hit that we're trying to jump on that, which is why they go with Langella and not a movie star in this 1979 version. Have you guys seen it before? No, this is my first time. I've seen it once on its network premiere, which makes it 1981 or 1982. So I'm like six or seven years old. I'm becoming fascinated with horror. And yet horror movies scare me. Like they were going to jump out of the TV and kill me. And I remember my sister was supposed to be home. I was left alone when I was six years old at home. So I was home alone And my sister was supposed to be back in time to start Dracula with me so she could protect me from this Dracula movie. She wasn't there. I didn't want to miss the beginning of Dracula. I didn't know what to do. I needed an adult. So I called my mom's friend who lived down the street and asked if she would stay on the phone with me until my (laughs) sister got home so I could watch this Dracula film. And... All I could remember coming back was that there was a girl who I thought would be Lucy in pancake makeup looking like a white Ronald McDonald zombie vampire and that I was overall bored and I remembered his final death on the boat. So not scared at six years old. No, those things that I mentioned scared me. I was very scared by the pancake face zombie. I was very scared by Dracula's death and the special effects that occurred there. But overall, I gotta say, this is a not recommend for the kindergarten set. (laughs) 
So if your kids love Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, don't show them Dracula 79. <laughs> I saw it as a kid, too, and I think Bored is right. Like, I think that you think it's going to be scarier than it actually is. And I think that that was the complaint at the time. When this thing came out in the heat of summer, Friday the 13th, July 1979, people were expecting a scary movie. And what they got was maybe a Harlequin romance. Like, it definitely feels like Langella's image as a sex god. That was what they emphasized at the detriment of some of the spookier moments. And it didn't become this blockbuster. It was a modest hit and made $20 million at that time. That was decent numbers. But same summer as Amityville Horror, same summer as Alien. Those films did four times the box office. And I think this one did just end up being something that ran on TV that just was not the sensation they hoped it to be. John Badham, I'm curious, do you guys have an opinion about this director? I really like him. I've seen so many of his movies. War Games, Short Circuit, The Hard Way, Drop Zone, Nick of Time. But my favorite of his is the duology of Stakeout and Another Stakeout. Those are just some fun buddy cop films. Not Saturday Night Fever, like his biggest film, probably. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I've seen that, too. His only good movie, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, no, I was looking at this, like, War Games, I liked that as a kid. I don't know. I haven't watched it in 30 years. Gotta be terrible, right? The AI that wants to teach us about nuclear war by playing a video game. I still like it. Its sequel is rotten, but man, that one is good. (laughs) I didn't know it had a sequel. But Short Circuit, Bird on a Wire, American Flyer. Like, talk about boring as a kid. American Flyer, a bicycle race. Ugh. Like, yeah, I'm like, oh, this guy's done a lot of Hollywood movies that have names that I actually recognize. I don't really like most of them, though. Yeah, I remember liking Stakeout as a rental, but by and large, hack. That's my impression, is that he just was a director for hire, didn't have much vision, made a lot of forgettable, action-y movies. Again, you mentioned a lot of things you saw. Are they things you hold close to your heart, Arnie? The hard way, really? Is that Michael J. Fox's (laughs) best work? No, but it was actually a pretty decent movie, I recall. The only one out of all of those that I listed, and I did forget Saturday Night Fever, which I do like. I was looking at his later works after this. The only one I think was a real dud was Drop Zone, the Wesley Snipes film. I mean, I believe you. I'm not going to go (laughs) check it out. Yeah, I've never seen it. (laughs) But the rest of them, and I rewatch War Games every few years, and... I did rewatch Short Circuit. Yeah, you guys did a podcast on that. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. It didn't quite hold up as high as I remembered, but I would stand by this guy as a maker of films I would generally enjoy. I mean, he is literally a director. Yes, he has made films. That is his job. (laughs) (laughs) He was coming off huge success. It's worth pointing out his first film was an all-black cast about uh, a Negro baseball league called Bingo Long Stars. Had Richard Pryor, James Earl Jones, Billy D. Williams, a modest hit. But then he followed it up with Saturday Night Fever, which became the disco movie. I think that movie is remembered incorrectly. People think it's going to be this kitschy thing on the dance floor. And it's actually quite a moving drama. Yeah, there's a lot of rape in it. Like, (laughs) it's all about rape in that film. It shocked me when I revisited it as an adult. When I first saw it, I expected one thing and got another, but better for it. Yeah, agreed. And so, what is his take on Dracula going to be? 
Well, again, I think he was thinking about sex appeal. He liked the idea of working with an actor that didn't have much screen experience. I mean, who was John Travolta when he made that movie, but somebody on Welcome Back, Cotter, and a bit part in Carrie. So I think that he thought that he could make Frank Langella a movie star with this. That was part of the challenge. Did he get in the same hairdresser as Tony Manero? Like, it feels like a very (laughs) 70s disco perm. You wonder what... If they had said, no, you got to go with a movie star, you think they might have gone with Travolta, right? (laughs) But it would have been the accent. The accent would have totally killed it. Yeah. I don't think Transylvania and New Jersey talk the same. Yo, these are my children of the night. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But maybe this one also didn't do well because it was the third in the same year. We've already talked about it. In January, we had Werner Herzog's Nosferatu, which wasn't a box office powerhouse, but got there first. It wasn't meant to be. (laughs) Yeah, but then in April, three months before this movie, let's make fun of Dracula. Let's put him on the disco floor. Love at first (laughs) bite makes twice. It does twice the business of this movie. The one Arnie wants to do. I'm not saying I want to do a podcast on it. I'm just saying I like it. And yeah, it's my formative Dracula picture. I would consider Fright Night the one that formulates in my head. But yeah. I remember it being on TV a lot. I taped it and watched it again and again and again and again and again. All right. We're still not covering it in this retrospective (laughs) because it's not a Universal Pictures Dracula. But who's to say that we won't circle back, do some Christopher Lee, do Love at First Bite. I'm hearing it's essential. (laughs) And so maybe. Let's table that for now. I'm also curious, which version did you guys see? Arnie, if you saw it on TV... You've seen the director's version, that John Badham didn't like what showed up on prints in movie theaters. It was too much color. He wanted to desaturate the image. So in all versions that came out on TV, on VHS, all of that, he really kind of put the stake in the theatrical version and made it so that it was almost impossible to see anything other than this nearly black and white monochrome director's version. I'm going to say I saw the theatrical one because there's a, I think, a lovemaking scene, maybe, that is very red. Lots of red lights going on. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I saw the color version because there were a lot of red cheeks and red faces and things. So I'm pretty sure I saw the color one as well. I know it was re-released, what was it, a Shout Factory two-disc set where you could get both color and desaturated. Yeah, I took that bullet and saw both. And Is it just color timing that's different? It is. There's no changes in the actual storytelling, although we do have commentary in which Badham says he wishes that he had cut the movie quicker, that he felt it drag. I agree. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he's not wrong, but uh, it was, yes, filled with lots of... God, there's so many people that have little bonus featurettes on that disc. I kid you not. The makeup artist, like the assistant cameraman. Who cares what the assistant cameraman has to say about a movie? But yeah, it's loaded up and you can see both versions, including the colorful one that had been lost to time. I don't have a preference. Initially, John Badham suggested shooting it in black and white. And the monochrome, the saturated version is as close to that as Universal would let him do. So if you want a black and white version, I know that's trendy now to see movies you love redone in black and white. It kind of has that vibe. I mean, people can just make that on their own now, throw it into iMovie and make it black and white. Sure. 
But it doesn't change the movie. It doesn't change the story. Arnie, why don't you give him the plot and we'll find out about this Dracula 1979. Dracula, played by Frank Langella, has come to England. Seemingly the sole survivor of the ship Demeter, Dracula's unconscious body was found by Mina Van Helsing. Mina is visiting Whitby and staying with her friend Lucy Seward and Lucy's father, psychiatrist Dr. Jack Seward, played by Donald Pleasance. Do you think Michael Myers is in his sanitarium in this film? Hmm, should be. It is strange to me that he played a psychiatrist to evil people multiple times. <laughs> what, did Halloween typecast him now? Well, maybe, but he got the gig because he was Blofeld in the Bond films. Later, Dracula is invited to dinner at the Sewards, where he becomes infatuated with Lucy, despite the fact that she is engaged to Jonathan Harker. That night, Dracula visits the Seward residence and feeds on and kills Mina. Mina's death brings to town her father, Professor Abraham Van Helsing, played by Laurence Olivier. Van Helsing realizes that what drained his daughter of blood must be a vampire. He exhumes his daughter's body, only to find an empty coffin in Mina's grave. In the mines underneath the grave, they find Mina, an undead zombie-like vampire with animated red eyes. Van Helsing removes her heart in order to fully kill this monster that was once his daughter. Meanwhile, Dracula has set his sights fully on Lucy. He visits her in bed and feeds on her, but Seward and Van Helsing give Lucy a blood transfusion, which slows her transformation. Seward, Van Helsing, and Jonathan Harker all team up to destroy Dracula. They break into Dracula's home during the day to destroy the monster, only to find Dracula wide awake. He can't go into the sunlight, but he's fully aware during the daylight hours, and he nearly kills his three attackers. Dracula and Lucy escape, planning to return to Transylvania. Harker and Van Helsing board the ship carrying Lucy and Dracula's coffins. In the ship's hold, they open the coffins, but Dracula and Lucy fight back. Van Helsing is impaled with the stake he intended for Dracula's heart, but while Dracula attacks Harker, Van Helsing throws a hook at the vampire. Harker succeeds in raising the hook, dragging Dracula into the bright sunlight. The sun's rays kill the vampire and seem to return Lucy to normal. But Lucy looks at Dracula's cape, flapping in the wind. Did Dracula survive? We wonder as credits roll. I will say no, because there is no <laughs> sequel to this movie. But we'll debate the ending when we get to the ending. I think it's more telling that we begin skipping what has been my favorite stuff from Dracula movies. Yeah, it's weird. It seems like every time we retell this story as we go on, less of the stuff of Harker or Renfield going to Dracula's house in Transylvania. We got to England very quickly in the Lugosi one. Here, like, we're just on that boat in England, like, super fast. Yeah, I agree with you, Stuart. My favorite stuff has always been in Transylvania. Seeing Dracula's castle, being introduced to Dracula there, be it Renfield or Jonathan Harker or whatever his name was in Nosferatu, I really liked that stuff and always found it a bit more dull when he would get to England. And here, my memory was that it started with the boat. I remember being on the phone with my mom's friend and that boat scene happening and I was like, is that real? Did they really cut out everything of Transylvania? <laughs> I, coming back to this movie, questioned my 40-year-old memory of watching this. And sure enough, we're just going to start on the boat with a werewolf attacking the crew. Yeah, this actually made me kind of optimistic because I've kind of missed Dracula being scary. And I get it with the 30s and 40s and the code. 
But like, yeah, now we're going to see a wolf farm and we're going to see rats and dead sailors on the ship like right away. This made me very optimistic. Yeah, he's a monster. We introduced the idea that he's feral and dangerous before we introduced the idea that he's a lady killer. And that might be a false impression because by and large, most of this movie is not about him transforming into a wolf and ripping out people's throats. But would it be better if it did? Yes. It would have been more of the movie that I wanted as a child when I watched it. The bored Stuart that didn't understand or care about romance was not served by much of the middle of this movie. But I finally understand something. I'm so happy. The captain is tied to the steering wheel because he doesn't want to slide out off the deck. It's not because of the vampire at all. It is simply because... The ship is rocking back and forth, and we finally have that dramatized. This ship whole set has been done by the people that did Jaws special effects, and you really do feel like you're in a terrible storm at sea. This is a dramatic and engaging way to begin any movie. Oh yeah, it's a hell of a hook, and does set you up for a movie you're not going to get. Yep. (laughs) But that wolf arm coming out of that coffin is a great first image. I wonder if that would have confused audiences. Like, I never realized Dracula turned into a wolf until, like, we started doing this deep dive, and I just heard that line repeated over and over and over. Not something I associate with vampires. So I wonder if that would be confusing. Like, if you don't know the deep Dracula lore, did you walk into the Wolfman movie by mistake? I've always thought it was cheap that a vampire could turn into a wolf. I'm like, don't crib somebody else's style. That ain't yours. (laughs) (laughs) It was in the book, and yes, it was definitely repeated as lines of dialogue of people looking out windows with no (laughs) coverage shot of actual wolf running across the lawn. We got a hyena in that silent film. Yeah, no, in the Nosferatu, it gave us a lot more than we ever got. But then again, Nosferatu is about monsters, whereas Dracula is about sex. It's not long before this wolf has turned into a man planted face down on the sand and a woman is running from the sanitarium to find him taking his hand as it pops out of the fur-lined collar, they quickly get to the idea, they quickly dispense with the idea that this wolf is a danger. It's more like he's feral. I'm going to ignore the fact that a naked wolf can become a clothed human and instead focus on the fact that he becomes a clothed human with a fur coat. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he's still got his fur on. It's just a coat this time. Yeah, it's the 70s, too. Like, he could go straight from that beach into Studio 54. Yeah, I mean, this is the look of the time. But the fact that we see this hand emerging from a fur sleeve as a sign of the transformation of the wolf into a human, I mean, I'm laughing. Yeah, this idea, which was obviously meant to be erotic, now comedic. Is it funny to see? Sometimes it is. I mean, I hate to say it, but sometimes when we look at sex symbols from other eras, it looks more like kitsch. Yeah, you're like, women wanted that? Yeah, right? Yeah. In this film, Frank Langella looks like a soap opera star to me. Mm-hmm. And the bouffant hair. But I still kind of get it in a 70s way. I see the appeal. I'm like, I kind of like this guy if I was living in the 70s. Well, you have to think about modern versus ancient. And what's interesting is the woman that's finding him is Mina, but Mina is not the main character. They've done the name flip that we've had in a few different versions. I guess the stage play made that choice active. They thought that Mina sounded like a European name and that Lucy would be more relatable to Americans. So Lucy is back in the sanitarium, 
a very modern woman. It's worth mentioning that she's invited Mina to stay with her because her friend is sickly. And what better way to recover than at a sanitarium? I know that when I get a cough, I definitely want to be in a madhouse <laughs> with like people just running around making babies and like tearing out their hair. I mean, it, it is a madhouse. Again, it's something I appreciate, like how over the top and chaotic it is. Like Donald Pleasant's not a good guy to run your asylums. Yeah, he was kind of suspicious as Dr. Loomis, but really negligent. <laughs> Again, if people are pregnant and having babies... The orderlies are up to something. Yeah, what is he allowing in his institution? But they have this baby choice. I think it's a, another way of emphasizing modernity. Okay, so here's Donald Pleasant screaming, where's my daughter? Lucy is his daughter. She should be the one taking care of these kids. And she's upstairs reading an acceptance letter from a law firm. She wants to go out and be implementing justice, be a part of the world. And here's a man that wants to keep her at home raising the kids. When is this movie taking place is my question. In the early days of cars? Yeah, we have a car in this movie, but yet, again, Dracula came out in the late 19th century, the novel did, and I'm used to him being in that time period. And here, I'm trying to get a bead on exactly where women's rights would be, where England would be in terms of World War I, World War II, and I can't place this movie. It's definitely moved up about two or three decades. They didn't say specifically, but yeah, women's suffrage would have been, they would have had the vote by the time this movie came out. If they have the car, they have the vote. <laughs> and so that choice is also just to emphasize that she is attached to a man, to a Jonathan Harker who is also modern, who has the 70s mustache, who is driving a car, which is seen as fancy and peculiar to all the people when he drives up to the ship wreckage. Again, she has a modern life, and she will choose this old world count, and this sort of retro way of being is at least challenging the idea that women's, behind every woman's liber is a secret desire to be conquered by a man. And we get introduced to Renfield again. They're moving things around. Renfield's not Harker's boss here. Is he homeless? Like, it feels like Harker sold his house out from under him, but it's this dilapidated Carfax Abbey again that he's upset about, but he's the one stuck calling those coffins to it. Yeah. Again, the indignity of, like, this used to be my castle, and now I'm hauling crates of dirt in for the new guy. And he tells Jonathan, when they're at that shipwreck scene the next day, He's like, I'm going to let the new guy know that you shortchanged me and overcharged him. But yes, as he's dragging this dirt inside this wonderful set, we do see a little bit of Langello. They're holding back on getting a close-up, but we have the classic Bela Lugosi shot of the hand emerging from the coffin as it opens. And then we have him opening his cape and turning into a bat and going for Renfield on the staircase. I do love the fact that when the guy wakes up later and he was like, I was bitten by a bat, like Dracula feigns ignorance. He's just like, really? Do say. He does that a lot. Like when, yeah, I think Lucy knows German so she could read the law. He's like, oh, oh, you speak that? Like, he seems to get caught by surprise a lot. Here's the thing. How do you play Dracula after Bela Lugosi has calcified it into this campy, Blah, 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 performance. <laughs> Langella just swallows all his lines, right? When he sees Renfield, he says, good evening, and not good evening. He's not going to play in 
to all the tropes and stereotypes. Yeah, he'll say some similar lines. Like, there's the whole thing, like, I never drink wine. Yeah, swallows that. Yeah, I didn't even catch it the first time. Like, I'm like, mm-hmm. wait, did they cut these lines out? And I went back, I'm like, oh, no, it's there. I just, it doesn't stand out. No, not at all. But that's how you have to play it. I mean, you have to have some of those classic callbacks, but you can't compete with Lugosi, and so you have to make it your own. And I guess your own involves a lot of Aquanet. (laughs) Yeah, all right. So when we finally get him, about 16, 17 minutes in the picture, Donald Pleasance has invited him over. Worth pointing out, Donald Pleasance has kind of a shitty role. He really doesn't do anything in this movie. And yet, it's pointed out to me in the commentary that he's stealing all his scenes with food. He makes a point of trying to upstage Langella and later Olivier by always being eating or like doing something distracting so that you're always paying attention to Donald Pleasance, (laughs) even though he has nothing to offer. It works. Maybe it's because I'm bored a lot of the time in this film, but he is the one I'm paying attention to. And I am too, maybe because of all the Halloween films, I just have a affinity for that actor, but he is getting my attention. But Now that you mention it, he did munch a lot. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) He's hosting a dinner party, and Dracula doesn't drink the wine, but he does walk in, dramatically take off his cape and, like, throw it at the help, and immediately (laughs) is, like, on the women. Barely paying attention to his solicitor, Jonathan, the guy that's selling him the place. It's all about, like, where are the ladies? Where am I getting my blood? Where's my next meal? And we do have the word Nosferatu. It's worth saying that it was in the ship's log. And he makes the subtle distinction that it translates as not dead, not undead, because he's trying to keep them off the vampire trail. Very shocked that that word was written in there and that they know what it means. Did you guys notice the flickering eyes? I had to have it pointed out to me. Yes. I did. I thought it was very weird. I used to date a girl who did that. Like, she couldn't decide which of your eyes to look at when she was looking into your eyes. And so it's like a tick I notice with some people in movies. It's a tick that Langella could disguise on stage, but it was involuntary. He didn't do it as an acting choice. It's just sometimes his eyes twitch. And so he was like, cut around that, will you please, John? (laughs) And Badham was like, no, this will be great. We'll use this when you are in moments of tension. When the servant slices his finger at the dinner table and you see the blood, I want to see that eye twitch because that lets me know the predator beneath the suave Lothario. It's a choice. Again, it's not dramatic enough a flourish for me to really see it as definitive or something that really stands out. But by and large, this is a much more subtle take on Dracula. Yeah, if you're expecting, again, that Hungarian accent from Bella and, yeah, those overdramatics, they're not here. It's, I don't know if grounded's the right word, but it's very underplayed. Just with a finger. He, he can make Mina fall over with a flick of his fingers. It's those kind of subtle movements. We know he's doing it. The camera cuts close so that we can see that he's controlling these women. But you got to do something with the hands because Bela made that such a big part of Dracula, you know, holding those hands out with the fingers. Again, it's just subtle. It's something you could almost miss that the Badham's camera has to cut to in close up for you to really appreciate. So how do you guys feel about this film as a romance? I'll tell you, my biggest problem is I get no chemistry between Harker and Lucy. Those two are supposed to be in love. They're supposed to be the heart of this, that Dracula is coming in between. And I just get nothing as they're dancing there and 
trying to sell me in words what I'm not getting in performance. I agree. I feel like this should be a big moment. Later on, we'll find out Jonathan's not happy that they dance, but worse Jonathan Harker (laughs) that we've done so far. I don't know who Trevor Eve is, but wow, like he made no impression on me in this film. Yeah, they both are coming from the British stage and yeah, Trevor Eve, he had been directed by Olivier. Why he came to attention to the cast was that Olivier brought him onto the project. And obviously they want to downplay Jonathan. We'd rather see the vampire end up with Lucy than with this slick lawyer who did probably cheat Renfield out of his rotten castle. But if you want this romance, this love triangle, like I got to have an impression on everyone and Harker just like you could cut him from this film and I don't think you would change what I thought at all. Okay, so here's the thing. Kate Nelligan is Oscar-nominated. She was Tony-nominated on the stage. I have a problem with her as Lucy. I don't feel like she is that captivated by anyone on the screen. And word has it that this actress hated being on set, hated this movie, doesn't talk about it. I feel like she's checked out. Dracula is working extra time to make this chick come to him And she is aloof, bored, and not someone that I care about whether she lives or dies. I agree. Mina's much more of an entertaining character than Lucy. Like, I'm always paying more attention to Mina than Lucy. And she gets it pretty quick here. They have a very dramatic special effects shot where she is left twitching in her bed while Lucy has run off to talk with Jonathan. And they pull out from the window and pan up to the wall. And climbing down is Dracula, defying gravity, coming through the glass. Love it. Pulling that Adam West wall climb thing here, but going (laughs) down. Like, I don't know. Like, whenever you get moments of just weirdness in this film, like, it pulls me back in. I couldn't help but think of Salem's Lot, though, with him outside the window and crawling up the walls. So, another big vampire movie of 79. Agreed. I like that we have this about him. I like the fact that anytime we can use special effects and trickery... It gives a mystique to this character because, again, how can you not laugh when the smoke machine kicks in and he walks through the window? It's great. It looks great. It's kind of like Travolta stepping out on that lighted dance floor. Like, there's just (laughs) something very disco about it. And you say it's great, I'm assuming because you like camp. It's not great as, like, a scary moment. It's not scary, but what I appreciate is that they have, like, money. They have effects this time around. They're doing something with it. This is a creature of the undead. I want some weirdness with it. So that, yeah, by great, it's not like the most scary thing or the greatest special effects ever, but I'm glad they're making Dracula this unnatural character with, yeah, disco fog and all that. I want to give this film two big compliments. The first is the visuals really work for me a lot of the time. Yeah. You called Batam a hack, but... Here, I think he's really bringing a visual style to the shots, and especially when we do get the special effects going on, it's drawing me in. The other thing drawing me in, and I had no memory he even did this, is John Williams' score here. John Williams is, of course, a classic film composer, and he does very well with his themes here, and the music sells me more than the actors a lot of the mood of these scenes. A debate. It's interesting, yes. Badham talked about how lucky he was to score John Williams coming off Superman and Star Wars, and his editor is like, ugh, 
overbearing. I hated it. I wish <laughs> that they could have gotten something more eerie. And it was a fight in post-production about setting a tone. And I think by having this score, the da-da-da-da-da-da, like it's going on all the time, it does kind of intrude. It does draw a lot of attention to itself when I'm wondering if the movie can't live up to that kind of buildup. It is a much more subtle story than what the score would have you believe. I mean, he's not Superman, right? <laughs> yeah, I agree. There are times in this film where it's just a cacophony of chaos going on. Like, some of them are in the asylum scenes with people just yelling. Sometimes it's this overbearing score. And it's hard for me to put my finger, like, on the tone of this film. Like, I'm getting all this great creepy imagery of Dracula crawling down a wall. And then, yeah, this overbearing score. I agree with that. I wish it was dialed back a couple notches. The struggle of this movie is that it was, I believe, not properly edited. Just tonally, it's got a lot of flair. I hear you saying like camera tricks and I agree with you, but I feel like sometimes, a lot of times, it dawdles. 100% agree. We just want to feel the idea that this doom is closing in on Mina. I mean, this she dies. He comes in, she offers her neck, and the next morning, She's gasping her last breath as Donald Sutherland is eating and slapping her around. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll agree with you that this film drags. It's after this point. The first half an hour of this film, I don't have a lot of complaints. After Mina dies, then the film has to slow down and really focus on the romance. Agreed. And so, again, we better like Lucy... As she set up, they go to the funeral and weirdly enough, they don't wait to bury Mina until her father gets there. He's coming in by train from Holland. I think it's mentioned, but uh, they got they got a barrier in the morning and then Lucy has to take the invitation to Dracula's dinner while Donald Pleasance goes to meet Laurence Olivier at the train station. Yeah, I thought it was a strange choice. They didn't wait for the father. Also, Laurence Olivier, classic actor. Do you guys like him? Lawrence Olivia, I feel like he's a generation before us. Like, I know the name. I'm sure I've seen some things that he's in, but this almost feels like Orson Welles voicing a Transformer as his last gig or something. (laughs) Like, this is what he's doing, this film? Okay. You can be mean, and I agree. He's not great here. It might be a little disappointing, particularly after his great turn as a Nazi in Marathon Man, but he was very sick. He hadn't worked for two years. He had some kind of nerve condition where he could barely move. Like, they had to get a stunt double in just for a scene where he runs down a hall. Yeah, I feel like he's barely in this film. Yeah, he just couldn't participate. You have Van Helsing that's supposed to be breaking out stakes and marching into dark crypts, and you have a great actor who is hobbled and who is very diminished in a role that should be very commanding. He feels very small in this movie. And in part, that's because they just couldn't bear the thought of recasting because the man was too sick to do the part they needed. Yeah, I kept writing down, like, why is Seward, Donald Pleasant's character, like, doing this? Like, he does a lot of stuff that I feel like Van Helsing should be doing, and I guess that's why, like, Olivier just couldn't do a lot of it. He should be coming in to bring new life to the second half. He is the energy to pump this up if you're not going for this romance. And I will say this much. The one shot I remember from this movie, Arnie, you remembered Mina as vampire. My one big image was seeing Lucy walk into this place full of candles and they cut to an overhead shot of a spider web. And we have that great moment where an actual spider appears to be crawling 
towards Lucy and Dracula. Great shot. Yeah. Brings her to the table. Like that feels like they went back to the Bela Lugosi, that moment where Renfield cuts through the spider web. They one-upped it. Like this was them looking at the past and coming up with an even cooler shot. But yes, is it romantic that they have this conversation? Dracula is doing the hard sell about eternity and biting her earlobe and talking about the wolves making sad music this time. Not beautiful. His house, that abbey, the design of it is so strange because there's faces everywhere. And like when she walks in, it reminds me of, I'm sure everybody remembers the bad luck tiki episode of the Brady Bunch. Of course. Maybe not everyone, but (laughs) our generation, yes. It reminded me of that tiki. And there's just these faces all around. And they, again, maybe they played as spooky back in 79. But to me, these are playing as comedic. Yeah, it's no Herzog opening up with a bunch of corpses from a crypt. Yeah, it plays kind of campy now. Well, here's the thing. On stage, Edward Gorey's sets had these flourishes, and it was all camp. The whole thing was meant to make people smile. Here, again, what is the intent? What is the tone? You say Batum isn't a hack director, and yet I feel like I need more directorial choice. Tell me how to feel about these moments. I'm not really getting whether I should be rooting for Lucy or hoping she gets holes in her neck. I feel the conflict with Dracula is that, like, we should not like him, but he's cool because he's Dracula. Antihero. We're all seduced. We all would submit. In the end, we would all bend our necks over and say, yeah, give it to me. But is the fact that he kills a baby, because I'm assuming that's why that baby dies, Alice's baby, like, that makes it a little too dark to root for an antihero. I thought that was Mina. Remember the lady in white that kills the children from the previous versions? Oh, okay. I thought that this was Mina now out on her own doing her first kills. Yeah, because that happens at the same time as this dinner date. While Lucy is being wined and dined, we have this, yeah, bizarrely inserted shot of a lady in a white dress smashing through the window and one of the inmates screaming, She killed my baby. Yes, she identifies her as Mina. And we have that kind of revolting shot of an infant lying in a pool of blood, holes in the neck, red eyes. I guess I just projected that on Dracula because Mina is one of the few people I actually like in this film. Yeah, and I mean, again, it is Dracula's fault. He did turn her. This is the thing that is going to have Daddy Van Helsing go and dig his daughter up. She's already in the ground, but he needs to know. He's been reading the the literature on vampires, (laughs) the medical journals. I like the fact that he's more of a grieving father than a professional, though. I do like the choice that a lot of this decision is made out of grief and not because, oh, I took a course and wrote the book on vampires. But yet he's still pretty quick to jump to vampires. Yeah, it feels very quick. But again, but you would believe like a father that's not being logical might work himself, might talk himself into that. You know, just not enough sleep, too many research articles about vampire bats, and suddenly he's digging into the coffin, bringing out horses, and because they're freaking out, that's proof to him that inside his undead daughter. Again, for me, that was very hard to follow. How are you coming up with these conclusions? I think you're right when you say something about the editing. I just, so many times, it just feels like we're smashing over to another scene and 
it's hard for me to get a grasp a lot of time of what's going on. And thankfully, people just say stuff like, you know, because it's hard to follow. I got to say the editor's little 20 minutes on the on the disc is my favorite because he's the only one not calling this a classic. Everyone else <laughs> is patting themselves on the back and congratulating everyone else for their brilliant work. And he was like, yeah, I was cutting around Olivier, because let's face it, it's not his best work, <laughs> and this music's not working, and this and that, and blah, blah, blah. Like, he said that there was a lot of footage, and that they had a lot to draw from. It feels like it. Yeah. The fact that we it stumbles to suddenly there is a mining tunnel connected to the actual plot where she was buried, and that she's climbed into it, and that Mina is hanging out in the mines with bats does feel confusing. I mean, I love it just as a gothic idea, but you wish that, again, setting the mood, it's the director's job to lead us into these conceits. And I do feel like it's very sloppy, like it's just stumbling from these set pieces rather than building to them. This vision of Mina gave me literal nightmares as a child. And now seeing it, I was anxious to get back to this. Like, what is it really? And like so many things that frightened me as a child, wow, is it funny, especially her eyes. I mean, I think that's some Roger Rabbit level eyes. Maybe that's why it frightened you as a kid. You have your eye thing. I love those red eyes, though. <laughs> this feels like Hammer stuff here. She feels like she'd stepped off the set with Christopher Lee. And the fact that we get her actually impaled, they actually built a rig where, like, Olivier comes at her with a big stick. Or his stunt double. Yeah, exactly. And it's an inflatable. It's actually a kind of a cool prop. An inflatable pops out her back. But that's how they, they made that happen in the pre-CGI era. And she's all like, Papa, and dying on the stick. <laughs> Meanwhile, I just love that what is Donald Pleasance doing all this time? He's like double-fisting crucifixes up <laughs> at the top of it. Again, he has nothing to do... And yet, if you make the drinking game out of it, you'll have a lot of laughs <laughs> watching Donald Pleasance. While all this is going on, we have the big seduction scene with Dracula and Lucy, and I think the laser effects from Michael Jackson's Rock With You video. <laughs> You're not wrong. They actually, I think, borrowed it from The Who. It was either The Who or Led Zeppelin, <laughs> but it, this was the latest in rock show theatrics. The swirling mist, the laser all of that stuff, they actually got the guy. This is perfect. Once I tell you this, you'll never unsee it. They got the guy who does the opening credits for all the Bond movies. Ah. So instead of, like, naked women doing <laughs> gymnastics, we get the bats, you know, like, flying around. I'm like, oh, this is a Bond movie sequence. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. This is the stuff, like, cut this thing down to 90 minutes, and, like, it's a great, like, music video version of Dracula. I wish it was more of this stuff. I do love that when Dracula takes Lucy to bed, I don't know if you guys saw this, I certainly saw, there were pink curtains above the bed, and you take the pink and the shape in which they were drawn, and it basically looks like the bed is a giant vagina. I'll have to go back and look at that. <laughs> I believe you, but I didn't see it. I'll just leave it at that. It wouldn't surprise me they were trying to be suggestive in this moment. A big contentious moment, yes. Critics were polarized. Some really call this stupid psychedelia, takes me out. Christopher Lee himself hates it, says it ruins the gothic vibe. And Badham was just like, no, it's cool. I love it. So 
I don't know where you land. I will say it does take you out. It does draw attention to itself in a way that no other scene in the movie does. But it's also at the important scene where this independent woman is suddenly saying, yeah, I want to give up my dreams of being a lawyer and be a vampire for the rest of my days. And drinking from his tit, Langella actually will carve open his hairy chest and she's sucking on him. I do love how 70s Langella is here. Like that shirt is unbuttoned just like John Travolta and Saturday Night Fever. And you say the critic said this takes you out of the film. Maybe it kind of brought me back into the film because I was just getting bored and no one was really connecting with me. And I'm like, oh, look, there's something interesting. I'm giving it 100% attention instead of like 70% because I'm just not into it until this point. But again, all I'm pointing out is that tonally, this thing is all over the map. From one moment... Oh, oh, 100% agree. We're in a romance. Another, we're in a Hammer movie. And another one, yeah, we get this rock show again what would this have been if it had been Mick Jagger or something like you wonder (laughs) could they have found a Dracula to make this scene work better because I agree it doesn't help Langella to do this moment Langella wanted to do what he did on stage and oftentimes he was fighting with the director over whether he could be big in that way so is this Dracula's thrall or is Lucy just cheating I you know I both I think that we can all agree that life with Jonathan would suck, right? (laughs) Yeah, 100%. Even with his car, I don't want to get in. Yeah, I think we've talked about this with Dracula. His peel, like this exotic foreigner that comes in and takes your women. And and so, yeah, he's got that kind of magnetism. Like, can you 100% blame Lucy for being an adulteress? And yet, I don't know that Langella is my future either. Like, I, I feel like, again, there's just something so silly about him. I feel like I want him to be more dangerous. It would help these romance scenes to know that he was more of this killer. They'll try. No, I feel like he just totally wants to be with Lucy. Yeah, it does feel like more of a straight romance where I want to woo you and marry you and be with you forever. Yeah, I mean, they talk about making more of them. And like, I think the plan is to spread vampirism to other people. That Mina was one of their children that they could just repopulate. He's he's turned Renfield, but here's the thing about Renfield is like, I don't know that he ever helped Dracula. I don't know what Renfield does. He dragged the coffin. Yeah, he brought his stuff in, his boxes of dirt. He was promised everlasting life. He gets the best laugh line. I mean, again, I love that. Like, I was bitten by a bat. And Langella's like, yes, I see. I mean, that (laughs) cracks me up. But again, he immediately goes mad. He's thrown into a cell, straight-jacketed, and Langella will just ultimately come to him and kill him. I don't see Renfield as being in service of anything in this movie. He's a leftover from a plot that isn't used. You notice I didn't even bring him up in my plot summary because he's not part of the plot. He's in this movie, but it does feel like obligatory which is a shame because I kind of like what the actor playing Renfield is doing when he's in the sanitarium. Eating roaches? Well, just his screaming and his maniacal performance. He's not as good as the 1931 guy. That's all I can say. (laughs) That's your Renfield. That is your standard. (laughs) It is. I haven't seen a better Renfield since 1931. But this should be Van Helsing's movie, right? Or at least he should be standing toe-to-toe with Dracula. And they added this moment. They had it in the play and they didn't have it in the movie script, but they realized they needed to have a confrontation. We do have the scene where Van Helsing is pouring himself a drink at the fireplace mantle and we see Dracula enter, but not in the mirror. And 
they have that moment where he's commanding the professor to obey him. I just wish I was seeing Olivier do good work. You know, I wish I could see his struggle. It's more like a struggle to stand up as opposed to a struggle to resist Dracula's charms. For what it's worth, I didn't get Olivier being ill during this film. Really? He just stands around. Like, the most he does is bend over to put a wafer in a coffin. Well, he's an old man, though, is how I took it, and so I didn't expect him to be nimble, but I didn't have a huge problem with his mobility while watching this film. But yeah, this scene, again, I'm really feeling this film start to drag. And yes, I agree with the editor. This could have been tightened up a whole lot in here. And this scene, we do need the tete-a-tete between Van Helsing and Dracula, but I can't say I'm enjoying it. Yeah, because, again, I would argue, I'm surprised you don't notice Olivia not being spryly, because in any other performance, including movies he made after this, God help him, he was in a remake of The Jazz Singer with Neil Diamond. He goes way overboard in that one. Oof, that's a really terrible film. But here he just looks so diminished. He does look like he just really can barely stand. Yeah, no, I really thought, oh, this must be like his last film. Did he even stay alive to see it released? Like, (laughs) it feels like that kind of performance. That's why you have people like Jonathan suddenly. I do love, Jonathan tries to be cool and comes at Dracula at Carfax with a crucifix. This is where we get into the idea. Fright Night dramatized this too, of like, you really got to believe. You can't pose (laughs) with a cross. I'll just snap it into pieces if you try to pull that shit and you're not authentic. And he gets bitten. I mean, it's worth pointing out, Jonathan gets bitten in the neck, too. They kind of drop that storyline. Yeah, I thought that we're going the way of Herzog here, where he was going to carry on Dracula's legacy, maybe with Lucy. I'm wondering if that wasn't scripted, and then they just realized that Van Helsing alone, just, he needs an entourage. He needs someone to drive the car (laughs) in the finale, because he's just not going to be able to do it. But it should be more of Harker's story, and, you know, it should be... The Triumvirate, which is who goes and confronts Dracula at his house, as you get Seward and Van Helsing and Harker all going to try and stop Dracula. This is pared down from the book, though, because Seward was one of Lucy's paramours, and there was also like a cowboy, and you know, there were just, there was more people. So the fact that it's just Donald Pleasance and Jonathan and Van Helsing. Again, I would argue if you had a really good Van Helsing, that's all you'd need. You could have killed Jonathan in this moment. He could be an undead that you are staking. You need either a good Van Helsing or a good Jonathan. Like, both of them don't work in this, and it's a real detriment to the film. Yeah, you can feel like they're part of the energy flag. Is that, yeah, they got a fast car, but they are not sharp, and they're not going to win. We don't want them to win. It's obvious that Dracula is the one for this woman, and they've somehow negotiated a carriage ride to the coast to get on a ship. Don't know how they pulled that one, but yeah, Dracula has come back, climbed the walls, broken in, snapped the neck of Renfield, and taken Lucy away from all of them. Yeah, because Lucy was in the sanitarium for a while. Yeah, she tries to turn Jonathan too. Again, that had to be in the script, right? That he turns vampire. They even do the overhead shot, kind of like the spider shot, shot through this mesh that looks like cobwebs. What I'm really saying is, I don't like this actor or performance, so kill him, right? We need a body count (laughs) if you can't give me a hero. One of the things I do like that gets called out at the end here, it feels like a Gremlins 2 moment, acknowledging some silly 
vampire rules where that acknowledged silly gremlin rules is like, yeah, Dracula, he could be awake during the day. He just can't be in the sunlight. As long as he's in the shadows, he could be around because it's always going to be night or day somewhere. So yeah, that makes sense here. And that may be why you prefer the monochrome director's version as well. Is because even in the daylight shots, you definitely get the sense that they're darker and that it looks gloomier. So that when the sun rays come in, when Van Helsing hits whatever he does and the window opens and Dracula has to recoil from the sunlight, it's much more of a dramatic variance than it is in the more colorful version. But let's get to the climax. So it's a long car ride to the coast. I didn't even mention the fact that Doctor Who is here, but the seventh Doctor, Sylvester McCoy, is one of the orderlies. I mean, you're the Doctor Who fan. I don't think Arnie and I got that. I know I didn't. <laughs> oh, that doesn't mean anything to you? No. Didn't even know. I, I tapped out after Doctor Five. Sorry, listeners. I know you guys love Doctor Who. <laughs> I mean, I don't watch it anymore, but I actually stopped before the seventh Doctor, but <laughs> worth pointing out. Trivia to know. That one of these no names in the background went on to be a Doctor Who. But they get to the coast. They get to the boat. What's the message here? That machines ultimately triumph. That Dracula can't outrun a motorboat. And that these men, incompetent though they may be, can still get to his ship and find his coffin. And I like this death scene. Like, I felt like, oh yeah, let's haul him out into the sunlight with the hook through him. This freaked me out as a kid because I'm like... You're calling that neighbor back up. I need you to talk me through this scene. My sister had arrived by this point. Okay. (laughs) And I'm like asking, what's happening to him? What's going on? And what she explained to me is he's turning old. Like the hundreds of years he lived, he's aging like that. And I don't think that was actually the case, but that's how my sister interpreted the scene. Uh, Yeah, I just took it sunlight kills him. And it's making his flesh fall off. She saw a Hammer movie is what she saw. And yeah, it's transposing that onto this movie. Does your sister have a fear of aging? Maybe she was projecting her own fears onto him. I don't know. She's 60 now and doing okay. (laughs) (laughs) They downplay this, though. I feel like there could have been more makeup effects that could have really made it like ghastly like Hammer does with flesh falling off. But maybe they wanted a sequel, right? The fact that. Yes, he is hauled up into the sails, but ends up flying away like a kite, or at least his cape does. We hear bat sounds when the cape flies away. And we see what's telling to me is Lucy like smiles at the end. This does feel like, I'm sure they didn't see the Herzog one that was being filmed at the same time, but it feels like that kind of moment where we're going with a more cynical ending, that evil does survive. It was the director's notion that she was impregnated, that they could do Son of Dracula, maybe, or something <laughs> that, like, she knew something that Jonathan didn't know, even though he looks like the rescuer. Van Helsing, worth pointing out, they knew Olivier wasn't going to make it to no sequel. He got staked. He's dead. A noble sacrifice to trade in exchange for Lucy's life, theoretically. And kind of a shocker, because you wouldn't expect it, not in the books, not in the previous versions. We always think of Van Helsing triumphing. So the fact that both are dead maybe means this franchise is dead, or at least this incarnation. Nobody's coming back to 1979. But do you wish they were? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend this Dracula? Jacob. And this one was a tough one. Like, you've heard a lot of praise and a lot of complaints. I had to think about this one because stylistically, like, there's a lot of great stuff in here. Sometimes it's campy, sometimes it's legit good stuff to watch as far as the style goes. I love the laser light show. I love the Wolfman arm and this ending, him getting impaled on a hook. Like, there's a lot of things there that I liked. And then there's the, not necessarily the length of the film, but how long it feels, 
how, again, cacophonous it feels at times. I just feel like sensory overload at times with the music and the yelling of mentally ill patients and then confusion because, yeah, they're cutting around Olivier. And it's hard for me to put my thumb on what is the point of this Dracula? Like, yeah, is it a horror movie? Is it a love story? It kind of tries to do all of that. And it's just a mess (laughs) in the end, but a stylistic mess. There are fun things to see here. And so that was my conflict is like, yeah, there's a lot of things to praise here. So if you're someone that just loves to see a stylish film and that's enough for you, then I think this will work. Ultimately, though, if I'm just talking to the average person, I don't think I could give this one a recommend. It's a weak not recommend. Again, very stylish. A lot of things I liked, but the bad parts, the bad editing, the characters that I just, I'm not involved with. Again, Mina is the only character I really like in this one. And Donald Pleasance, just because he's Donald Pleasance, not because he's doing anything amazing, bringing uh, pathos to Dr. Seward here, but it's a weak not recommend, but ultimately a not recommend because of all that messy stuff. Stuart. I'm going to go the other way. I'll say mild recommend, but I agree with you. A total mess. The compliment I have, it's actually better than the 1931 film. Like, if you have to pick a Dracula, this is the one that's going to tell you more, explain more, has a whole lot more style, has coverage, has insert (laughs) shots. You can tell what's going on. And, yeah, Langella, I think you have to downplay. After Bella, you have to do less. After Christopher Lee and the blood, you have to find your own path. And his, yeah, campy Lothario disco stud is... At least a brown arrow, right? Like, I mean, there's something kitschy fun about what he's doing. I wish he had better co-stars. I wish that I cared about Kate Nelligan. I feel bad for Laurence Olivier. But they really let him down, and he's kind of in a movie by himself. So the movie's only really good when he's in it, or when we have things like Renfield or something that... The bits with Mina coming back as a vampire. The horrific moments. I wish that we had a different director... I wish we had a sense of clear intent. It's not a surprise this wasn't a big hit, but I do think that it's watchable, entertaining, a competent version of Bram Stoker, and a mild recommend. And I was in a similar place as Jacob when the credits were rolling on this, where I'm like, I guess I could give it a recommend. I mean, it wasn't bad, but... It also wasn't good, and by the end of this movie, I felt my interest flagging a lot. The longer the movie went on, the more unfocused it seemed to be. Yeah, it was. And I really enjoyed, like, the first half hour here, and then I enjoyed moments in the second half hour, but by the time we're reaching the end, I'm starting to really lose my interest in this. And there's some good filmmaking, but I think there's some bad acting. (laughs) Or at least just not engaged performances that never let me feel any side of this romance, either between Lucy and Jonathan or really Lucy and Dracula. It's certainly not the worst Dracula film we've seen, but I gotta go weak, not recommend. I get it. It's sort of on that line. Again, we all saw the same movie. It's yeah. this mediocre experience that you can take some stuff from, but difficult to fully embrace. I make the case you really need a major director to have honed this thing, either in the editing room or preferably on the set. We're going to get a major director next week. I don't know if we're going to get the Dracula movie we want, but we are going to get Francis Ford Coppola's vision coming in 1992, 13 years later. That's our Dracula when we come back next week. In the meantime, M. Knight, he's got a dystopia, or at least he's trying to stop the end of the world. 
with his new movie. It's already out. Our show about it hits this Friday. What's it called? Knock at the Cabin. There you go. It's They changed it from the book. The book was The Cabin at the End of the World. But yeah, I'm going to knock on this cabin. I have a feeling. Knock on him night. <laughs> yeah, but we'll see. I'm hopeful. The book was pretty good, so I'm hopeful that he can't ruin it. I mean, the twist is he'll ruin it. <laughs> <laughs> that's no twist. That's expected. The twist would be three green arrows and no brown arrows. It could happen. Split. Every now and then, he does, if not get back to six cents, at least find one we can endorse. So maybe this is it. Well, we'll find out on Friday. This is for people who have donated at the M. Night Blue level or are patrons of $50 or more. You get access to reviews of all of M. Night Shyamalan's thriller films. That doesn't include his early couple of films, but everything from The Sixth Sense onward. No Rosie O'Donnell. Sorry, Rosie fans. (laughs) We're just not doing that nun movie. And I want to give a shout out to some of our patrons at the $50 and higher levels. Jeremy Mills, Sean O'Keefe, Andrew Morrison, Gerard Lavelle, Rob Carter. Also want to thank Timothy Graham, Simon Brennan, Alejandro Avia, Tom Ward. And thank you to Sean Burgess, Anthony Ups, Andrew Woodhead, Tom Jancic, James Kinslow III, and Dark Hue Studios. Dark Hue Studios. Not to be confused with Hammer Studios. So thank you all for your tremendous support of our show. We put out a free show every single Tuesday, and we're only able to do that by those who support our show through our crowdfunding campaigns. Thank you so much, and we hope you'll all be able to join us this Friday for Knock at the Cabin. And Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And now may the evil spirit be cast out until the end of time. Be thou exorcised, O Dracula, and thy body long undead. Find destruction throughout eternity in the name of thy dark, unholy master. In the name of the All-Holiest, and through this cross, be the evil spirit cast out until the end of time. Thank you for listening to this now-playing podcast, Movie Review. We hope you enjoyed the show. Listen to them. (laughs) The children of the night. What sweet music they make. Help us spread the word about this show by leaving a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice. But even if it would work, do you expect me to agree to anything so fantastic? Want more reviews like this one? In the archive section of NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll find more than 1,000 in-depth movie reviews from our panel of hosts. I hope you will like it. On our site, you can hear reviews for every installment in the world's biggest film franchises, including the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Star Wars, Spider-Man, Batman, X-Men, James Bond, Middle Earth, Jurassic Park, Fast and Furious, 
and Transformers. You do not know why you came here tonight. It was because I wished you here. Plus, we have individual movie reviews, such as Titanic, E.T., Inception, Big Hero 6, Ready Player One, Pulp Fiction, Apocalypse Now, Dr. Strangelove, and hundreds more. I want to be what you are. See what you see. Love what you love. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com next Tuesday for another all-new movie review podcast. You're always leaving on me in my film. <laughs> Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. Isn't eternity together better than a few years of ordinary life? You can donate directly by tapping the support button at nowplayingpodcast.com. A good prince would have paid that price for peace. And you can join our crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews. The spider spinning his web for the unwary fly. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Okay, obviously we're dealing with a little bit more than just narcissism here. Associate produced by Jason Latham. I am the king of my kind. Now Playing is edited by Heath, Santiago, and Arnie. I condemn you to living death, to eternal hunger for living blood. Now playing credits read by Brock. Words, words, words. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Enganza Media Incorporated. How can you expect me even to listen to you when you're concealing the truth about yourself? Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. Master, we are here. You can't hear what I'm saying, but we are here. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Your impotent men with their foolish spells cannot protect you from my power. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2023, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Good night, Mr. Renfield. Classic actor, 
Do you guys like him? Here's the thing. He's a generation older than us. Like, I know Lawrence of Arabia, but I don't know what else. And this feels like he's coming in very old. Is like, he in Lawrence of Arabia? That's Peter O'Toole. That's Peter O'Toole I'm thinking yeah. of. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I remember Lawrence of Arabia, and I don't remember Lawrence <laughs> Olivier. I was looking that up because I'm like, he's not Lawrence, so who the hell is he? <laughs> Lawrence Olivia, I feel like he's a generation before us. 